We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Well, lots of chatter of late, uh, obviously, about a self-inflicted housing crisis that we find ourselves in. And in a post-pandemic world, that has just magnified itself as so many other things uh, have. And a modular housing builder is receiving funding to upgrade its Ancaster, Ontario facility to ramp up production to increase the country's attainable home supply. Uh, the investment, it will allow Beck Modular Homes Hamilton Area Plant to punch out 2,200 structures per year of single and multi-story buildings through an expansion of production lines. What does this all mean? What is a modular home? Let's bring in Ali Osden, CEO of Beck Modular, and here now. Ali, uh, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you, Scott, for having me in your show. Yes, I'm doing all right. And actually, I'm doing way, uh, way better than all right. So, um it was a pleasure to have the minister on uh, on Monday. Uh, it was a great event. All right, a great day, and, and this looks like a win-win situation. First of all, tell us what a modular home is. What's the difference between that and a standard home? So, so uh, I, I guess the that's, actually that's a very good question. So, uh, modular used uh, in in our uh, case as a volumetric structure. So we have. Different ways of doing an offsite uh, solution um, to uh, to um, in our uh, business. Uh, you have the two two dimensional solutions, so the panels are built in factory, and you have the solution that we call it modular, which basically is a three dimensional solution. So we be- basically build homes uh, in a factory in a facility, and and they are built in in uh, in uh, predetermined sizes. So a lot of them they would be built between anywhere between eight feet to 15 feet frontage to all the way to 25 feet to sometimes up to 50 feet uh, uh, long. So we, we build these things in in a, in a factory space and they're fully finished. I would say 95% finished with all the MEP painting, trims, doors, and we take them to site and we we call it in technical terms a stitching. So we basically combine them together on site. Uh, they could be they could be single dwelling homes. They could be multi residential apartments. Uh, we build both both of them, and um, yeah, that's basically a, a volumetric modular solutions. And um, I, I notice you use, you use the word attainable rather than affordable. What does that mean, and why the choice of that term? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> actually, thanks for uh, thanks for pointing out that out because uh, I guess. I guess so. The, the the there is a there's a certain notion around um, uh, a modular uh, uh, manufacturing solutions. A lot of people they think that we um, uh, we build trailer homes. Um, right. So 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 a lot of a lot of the solutions that we provide are 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 basically uh, by, by by its nature is affordable. But it's also it's available to to pretty much everyone. So it's because affordable doesn't necessarily mean it's it's a, a sub level uh, uh, a product. So uh, it's a product that actually on on many different levels are higher than the the current construction solutions that that's provided. So basically, what you're doing here is you're manufacturing the 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 products, the walls. Beams, whatever, for lack of a better word, and then assembling that on site, as opposed to building a home from scratch. We're actually building it fully finished, so um, so it, it's there completely finished to a degree that you can uh, literally move in. So uh, the day that uh, the announcement was made in uh, when Minister Tassi was in our um, in in our uh, facility. Uh, Actually, she had the chance, and a lot of media people had the chance to to come and visit the uh, the finished unit. So, so the particular unit was made from three modules, and and they were combined, and they were fully finished. So, so we don't necessarily only do the panels. We don't necessarily mm-hmm. uh, do portion of it. We actually fully finish the units. That's why we call it volumetric modular structure. They're three dimensional. Uh, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing, everything is, is is working. When you take it to site, it's just a plug and play. You just combine them, bolt them together. Um, you either put them uh, you uh, side by side or you stack them up. Um, we do projects. Um, um, right now, we have a project that's going to, to Ottawa. Uh, uh, it's part of an affordable housing uh, 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 project. Um, so it's it's three story building, thirty four units. Um, each unit is made up from three to four different modules. 
They are anywhere between 900 to 1200 square feet. Um, the cool thing about the, these these products are they're very similar to Lego concept. So they're all same sizes, but then they're interchangeable. You can use different layouts and you combine them on site. Um, our products can be built up to 12-story high buildings. Um, and once it's finished, Scott, you cannot tell the difference from any other conventional building to our buildings. They're, they look the same. This is a fascinating idea. I'm looking at your website now. Uh, how You alluded to this. How can this help the homeless population? You talked about a project you were working on. So, so the one that we, uh, we the one that I mentioned, it's 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 a, a more of a transitional approach. It's it's mostly for uh, um, uh, single single moms uh, with kids. So, um, right. so the one that we, that was uh, that was presented uh, to to Mr. Tassi was had the two bedrooms, two washrooms, uh, a mom and and two kids. So, uh, so basically, what I find that that uh, our products could be. Uh, very well uh, used in these in these cases are that because they're they, you can rapidly build them and and take them to site. So so just let's keep this one. I just want to point this one out. This project was permitted uh, six months ago. Um, so after six months uh, after after the permit has been the the um, approved in the entire project was built in six months. We finished the uh, wow. thirty four units within six months. Normally this project would have taken two years. So the speed of it is obviously uh, incredible. So that lowers the, the cost of building them and also how rapidly we, we're unfolding it. Ali Osden with us, CEO of Beck Modular, uh, just received uh, money from the government to ramp up their operations in Ancaster to punch out 2,200 structures per year and a solution, at least part of the solution, to our housing situation. Ali, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much for having me in your show. Uh, we talked about this. We've talked about it quite a bit. Remember back in the day, uh, if alcohol or tobacco taxes, they were called the sin taxes. If they were going up, which happened, I don't know, maybe every few years or so, it became an election issue. So say every four years, oh, we're going to raise the price of tobacco and the price of alcohol. Oh, and it would become, they'd battle it out. And then our current prime minister put in what's called an accelerator tax. So every year, and he did this a few years ago, every year this goes up by inflation. And of course, when inflation's at nothing or 1%, no one notices. But when inflation jumps to 8%, uh, sitting at 3.4 right now, and the government settles at 4.7 or almost 5% increase in the accelerator tax, which puts, pushes up all of the product, by 5%. And there's no debate. There's no questioning it. There's no accountability. There's nothing. Except you go to the store and you go, holy smokes, look at that. Look how much it's gone up. Like, what is it? Like almost 50 bucks or 50 bucks for a case of beer now? Well, Beer Canada, who represents a large portion of the industry, have brought back Bob and Doug McKenzie. And they're challenging the beer tax hike in new commercials, courtesy of Beer Canada. Listen to this. Good day. I'm Bob McKenzie, and this is my brother, Doug. Good day, and happy 2002-4, eh? Yeah, it's the beer year, eh? Only happens every hundred years. Like a total eclipse. So why would the government raise the beer tax in a beer year? Yeah, how about we put a total eclipse on the beer tax, Ottawa? A message from Beer Canada. Stop the 5% beer tax hike on April 1st. Visit hereforbeer.ca. Come on, Ottawa. It's 2002-4. Freeze the beer tax. Let's save our beer year, eh? And how apropos it ends with A. Uh, C.J. Healy with us, President of Beer Canada here now. C.J., thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. Uh, why this approach and what's the response been like? So I think the approach is because there's so many big issues that governments have to deal with, uh, especially national governments in Ottawa today. And so you need to really get through all the noise, all the fog and put your issues front and center. And Bob and Doug are about as good as anybody to cut through fog. Uh, talk about the accelerator tax, how it affects uh, your industry. So you really nailed it early on, uh, Scott, in your intro, where you know historically governments went to their parliament and voted on whether taxes should be increased or not. Uh, but in 2017, this government did something really sneaky. Um, they 
for all the um, ra rationale of the day, increased beer taxes, wine spirit taxes as well by 2%, which is fair enough, right? Every few years you go back to parliament and you say, you know, make the case uh, about whether you should be changing uh, taxes. But they added to that 2% increase, a automatic annual increase tied to inflation. And that was really um, undemocratic, we think. And it was not that uh, controversial, I guess, in the first few years, because inflation was in this Goldilocks period of one to 2%, which the Department mm -hmm. of Finance would thought would happen forever. Um, their crystal ball was wrong. And last year, inflation skyrocketed. And so we've been living in this uh, circumstance for the last you know, 24 months or so, always being threatened with these huge uh, beer tax increases because of a spike in inflation. Uh, is this resonating with Canadians now? Because to me, it's gotten to the point where you walk into an outlet and, and boom, you, you're getting a bit of sticker shock. Yeah, I'd say two things to that, Scott. One is we are all feeling the pain of higher prices for nearly everything, right? The food, yeah. the gasoline, housing, everything. And so people are cutting back on discretionary spending, not going out as often, not uh, hosting as many parties, all those kinds of things. So we're seeing a real softening in uh, the market. But the other thing is that, you know, the local MP, the members of parliament who is talking to their constituents are getting the same feedback. They think it's nuts that they're even considering a 4.7% beer tax increase this year. So I think we have the votes. In fact, I know we have the votes to stop it. But the point is because of it's automatic, we need to force a vote. So that's where uh, the challenge that we're facing at the moment. Um, are, 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 are brewers feeling the pinch? Are they recognizing that this is getting too high of a price for the average Canadian to pay? They're getting squeezed on both sides. Um, so they are paying a lot more for their barley and their packaging and their transport mm -hmm. than ever. They haven't been able to pass on all of those market-based costs into the price of the product because the consumer has hit a wall. They're not willing to pay more for uh, a case of beer at retail or for a pint of beer at the bar. And so they're facing all these cost increases. They can't pass it along to the consumer or their customer. And here we are, the government threatening to pile on something that they just can't afford. And you know, over 50% of... Uh, smaller brewers in Canada, you know, are, are are losing money at the moment. So it's really a dire circumstance if this uh, abnormally high beer tax increase goes forward this year. Uh, can you see this increasing the demand for discount beer or is that limited in what it can achieve? I think we've already seen a little bit of that, um, but that's not going to save the industry. Uh, they just, nobody can afford uh, you know, another 5% tax increase on the product at this point. So it's, 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 there is a little bit of shifting going to, um, uh, you know, lower price product, uh, but that is not going to save the industry. Uh, what about packaging? I remember during the pandemic, they went to packages of 30 that, you know, the more you buy, the less it is, but now, uh, you know, you just, again, find yourself spending more. That's right. All of these uh, innovative kind of ways to uh, make the business more efficient, more cost effective. We're doing our part as the uh, brewing side, but there's a limit to how much tax you can absorb. Uh, and uh, this has been an annual sort of drip every year for the last, um, well, since 2017. And then it's, it goes from a drip to a flood. And uh, we just, you know, we're the water was up to our neck before this, and now we're sort of going underwater. And, you know, this tax is got this increase is coming April 1st, um, but there'll be another one next year as well. Well, that's that's the insane part about this, right? That it just builds on itself. It's you're yeah. you're you're growing uh, exponentially in terms of the overall tax burden. Uh, and there has to be a point where it stops. And I think this is the time to say enough is enough. We need to uh, go back to the way it had been in the first 150 years of democracy in Canada, where if a minister of finance thinks it's time and they have the political support and the, and the electoral support to uh, put forward a, a proposed beer tax increase, they should do that 
in Parliament. Do you think, uh, CJ, we'll see a reversal of this between now and April 1? So there's going to be a federal budget, uh, likely uh, in the mid to late March, and we fully expect that senior heads will prevail and that there will be uh, a, a, an, a, whether it's a, you know, a complete freeze or like happened last year, a 2% cap, I think there will be some relief from a nearly 5% beer tax increase because I don't think the government wants to try to uh, win an election on raising beer taxes. C.J. Healy with us, President of Beer Canada. Bob and Doug McKenzie are back, part of a campaign to bring awareness to the tax hikes coming in beer and all forms of alcohol uh, April 1st due to the accelerator tax. C.J., thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate your time. Writing in the National Post, Tasha Kiridin says Canada's immigration policies are damaging the economy, citing findings from uh, some of Canada's top bank economists that are saying that Canada has fallen into a population trap in which you don't have enough savings to stabilize your capital labor, uh, capital to labor ratio. Tasha Kiridin here, principal and navigator, author of The Right Path. Here now, Tasha, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thank you so much. I had a financial guy actually send me your column uh, the other day. So there you go. This is resonating wow. with people. Good You're for reading. you. I know, I know. So first of all, uh, are Canadians connecting the dots here that the new housing minister who's making all of these announcements was the immigration minister two years ago when the immigration department said targets are too high and that the increased immigration would fuel the housing and the health care crisis. Now this person is the housing minister trying to solve that problem. Is anybody putting those dots together, connecting those dots? Uh, They should connect the dots because uh, it's the biggest fail this government's had, I think, possibly since it took office. Because It's astounding that they didn't listen to him then, but they're going to listen to him now. Well, this is the thing. Um, He didn't, well, he he also, I mean, the department didn't, didn't, um, wasn't listened to. Uh, the, The studies that were done at the time, the minister, the current minister, um, denied that they existed. Mark Miller, he said, you know, in December, he said, we need to, to look at this or we need some, some more information or something. Well, they had the information. Yeah. So it is really, you know, Canadians are living through, I'd say probably the worst housing crisis in certainly in my memory. Um, you know, uh, it, it is, it, it's dire for a lot of people. And to hear this now that this could have been avoided is really aggravating. What is the population trap? So the population trap is when you bring it, when you, your population can't keep pace or your infrastructure rather can't keep pace with population. So what they say is stabilize your capital to labor ratio. What they mean there is you need enough workers um, in the system to keep up a certain standard of living, to keep the lights on, to keep businesses running. But you also need to have enough support for those workers. Or else what you end up with is this situation where you're you're constantly adding people, but you can't add the, the supports at the same time. So it's a it's a trap that it's like, oh, we depend on constant immigration to fuel our economy, but the economy's not keeping pace with what needs to support that pot. So you end up with this this cycle of too many people, too few places to live, inflation, because those people compete for resources. You know, they come here. And I, I say in the article too, it's like, you know. You think of increasing population through through uh, children, for example, through families. Well, kids don't eat as much as adults. They live with their parents. They don't need separate accommodation. Mm. They don't, you know, they don't travel by themselves in a, in a different car. An adult immigrant is a very different situation. They need the same thing as you and I do, and that means they're competing for. So inflation goes up. Demand is going up for all the things we need: food, housing, all that. So inflation goes up. Everything costs more. And then, you know, businesses are like, oh, well, now we need to bring in more people because <laughs> costs are higher. And it's a yeah, it's a vicious circle of bad things. And, and it's amazing because they seem to ignore the results of their own behavior. Um, that being said, as as you move forward with this and 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 the minister is now saying that they're going to look at the number of students that are coming in, for example, international students, and they're going to do this in the next few months when, of course, again, I think this is something that needs uh, attention right now and seems to be pushing the blame to the provinces or even the schools for well, cashing in. There is that issue because the provinces are the ones who regulate uh, post-secondary like colleges, for example. And yeah. you know, you've got tons of colleges, in quotes, I put them in air quotes, that are bringing in 
young, you know, people uh, who are then working full time, basically, yeah. uh, in various fields where you can't find people to do the like tr- truck driving, construction, um, hospitality. But that's not what this program was intended. And, you know, at the end of the day, these people are living in terrible conditions. And in Brampton, for example, um, they're cracking down now on the number of bedrooms you could have in your house and how many people you could have in them because they found places where you'd had 12 students living in one bedroom in Brampton basement. That is mm. just wrong for everyone. Uh- um, over and above this column, um, here we are. Uh, we know that uh, the prime minister is is steadfast and writing this right till the very end, running the clock out. Is there a point because things do not seem to be getting any better for him? Uh, quite the opposite. Is there a point where he backs away and puts his party ahead of himself and says, you know, in order to give the party a fighting chance in the next election, I'm going to step away now to at least give them uh, some runway and such, or or does he just drag the party down with him? Well, it's funny because some of the contenders, you know, people have been talking about Sean Fraser, a potential leadership contender. Well, I don't know so much about that now. Um, <laughs> look at this. And, and, you know, if he steps away, the question is who steps up. And uh, yeah. I think at some point, yes, I think that the party's already having those, those conversations in the quiet corridors, you know, unofficially people are, are talking about this, but at which point it becomes serious pressure on him. It's hard to say because, um, I'm not sure what the polling shows for those other folks. If they were to to take the leadership, would they do better? Um, would they do worse? You know, that's that's the calculus I think a lot of people will make. But he may not want to lose either, you know, so badly. And to save his own dignity, so to speak, he may bow out. That's his choice. Is there a timeline here where they have to get this done in order to give them enough runway? Well, yes. I mean, usually about a year. So you're looking at, uh, you know, election 2025. So you'd be looking at a leadership starting in 2024. And some people have speculated on that, but, you know, they'll bring in the next budget. The NDP will support it because they're running out the clock, too. And then the choice will be just, you know, to leave before the summer kind of thing. All right. Tasha Carradine is with us, a principal at Navigator, author of The Right Path, talking about immigration policies and how they are affecting the country. Tasha, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much. This looks like a great experience and a tremendous amount of fun. And it reminds me a lot of the old uh, murder mystery dinner theater things. Uh, but the wedding is an immersive wedding reception experience. It's coming to the Cotton Factory next month, uh, February 9th and 10th. And it comes with all the comedy and drama of two families coming together. And if you get your tickets, you're not just a member of the audience. You're a guest. To talk more about all of this, Emily Bollier with us of Emerson Arts and here now. Emily, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hello. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This sounds like a very cool idea. First of all, give us the logistics, the times, the wares, all that, how we can get tickets. Absolutely. So you can uh, easily search on our website, which is emersonarts.ca, or you can go to Eventbrite where the tickets are on sale. Tickets are $75 a piece, but it includes a full show that you're immersed in. Uh, It's a dinner, just like you would have at a regular wedding reception. And uh, to top it all off, we've got a fantastic wedding band called the Cantaloupes, who will be performing after the show for a few hours. So it's uh, you're kind of getting a dinner, a show and dancing all for one ticket. Um, it's taking place February, Friday, February 9th and Saturday, February 10th at the Cotton Factory. Um, and the Cotton Factory, if you've never been, is just this incredible old building that we have here yeah. in, in Hamilton that has been repurposed over the years. Many different things from cotton to makeup to children's clothes. But now it is an arts hub. And some of the coolest things in Hamilton are happening at the, at the uh, Cotton Factory now. Yeah, it's a beautiful space. Just that alone is worth uh, going to see. So uh, how did you come up with this idea? It kind of reminds me of the old murder mystery thing, but what a great idea. You're basically at a fictitious wedding. And I guess you don't know, could you have uh, an actor sitting at your table per se? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> this um, is a great idea. If you're idea. lucky, yeah. Uh, the, it is literally the feeling of a wedding you're going to come into the cotton factory there will be a guest list that shows you know your seating chart 
Uh, you'll find your seat. You'll sit down. There's a cash bar with all proceeds going to the um, arts association, the Women's Art Association. And uh, so you can get your drinks and then have a seat. And then the show just sort of happens all around you. And it's right from uh, 6.30 is when the show begins. And uh, right away, there'll be some some drama uh, that you won't help but but notice. Um, we don't, you know, stop and say, okay, everybody look over here to your left. It's it's just literally oh, immersive. Man. So you're going to be experiencing it the same way you would if you were ever at a wedding where some things maybe just didn't go the right way. Oh, there <laughs> is so many possibilities here. I would love to write this. Uh, there's so many different directions you could go in. Uh, oh my so goodness. It- We've been having such a great time with it. Um, my business partner is Mason Misevsky and he and I had talked about this show a couple of years ago and really wanted to bring it to life. And we talked about it last year as well. Maybe, you know, we had approached a a couple of places. And then this year, it sort of fell in our laps. We were at the Cotton Factory. We were having a conversation with the the crew there. And uh, they had mentioned um, a wedding show. And Mason and I were like, we have one ready to go. All we need Mm. to do is, you know, cast it, rehearse it and, and do it. And uh, and then the magic was born. It was so easy to come up with. Um, over the years, since Emerson Arts has been around, we have a really great uh, bunch of actors who have been part of our shows. And we've reached out to people and we're just, you know, are you interested in being part of this? Um, some of our great ones came back and said yes and had some great character ideas. And it all came together. And we just we've put together this hilarious show. It just sounds like a brilliant idea, Emily. So basically, this is like going to a wedding. So you show up, you go to your table, you eat dinner. I'm I'm presuming there's a bride in the... A bride and the best. groom. Yeah, the bride and the groom and a wedding party and speeches and then all fun ensues. Yes, we've got the <laughs> chef. We've got the event planners, the wedding planners. We've got the mother of the bride. We have, um, you know, the bridesmaids have some things going on. Just pretty much everywhere you're looking, there's uh, there's going to be something happening. And then the hilarious thing, I guess, when it's over, then there's a band that plays. Absolutely. And and then uh, you can dance the night away to great wedding music. I've, I've heard the cantaloupes before. They're great. They're awesome. All right. So we're doing the chicken dance. So um, <laughs> what that does. So is any of the acting go on at this point or is the show pretty much over at that point? This is just the fun part. Well, the characters the actors will always be in character so even if the actors are there helping to clear plates at the end of the night or something they are going to be in character the whole time so um that is going to make it a lot uh that will make it funny are you concerned about people interacting with the actors or do they oh we encourage it we absolutely (laughs) encourage it especially once um you know you'll the audience will and the guests will know when, uh, you know, the show is happening around them. But whenever right. things are a little quieter, maybe there's a little break happening. We encourage our audience members to, um, you know, chat with the the actors and see what they can learn. They're going to have a great time. What an absolutely great idea. And uh, boy, you could um, you could probably do a new one of these every month when you think about it uh, with various family stories and, <laughs> and such around town. Uh, great idea. Absolutely. It all happens February 9th and 10th at the beautiful Cotton Factory. And if you want to find out more Emerson Arts, uh, look them up. Emily Bollier with us of Emerson Arts. It's a wedding. You're part of it. And watch for flying buns. Uh, Emily, good luck with all of this. It sounds like a great idea. Have fun. Thank you so much. Have a great day. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, the Canadian government is publicly naming 85 Chinese research institutions that may pose a threat to national security and sensitive research. The list also includes 12 Iranian and 6 Russian organizations that the Canadian government believes have uh, believes have ties, believes 
have ties to military, national defense, or state security entities. The listing is part of a push to secure Canadian research and development in sensitive industrial sectors, including advanced weaponry, aerospace, space technology, quantum science technology, from economic espionage and theft. Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, and here now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, and I like I like your wind chill advice, Scott. I'm going to write that one down. Yeah, see, you, you make sure that you spend more time with the wind at your back when you're walking the dog. <laughs> Although you may end up at the other neighborhood, and you may have to have someone come pick you up because you don't want to walk against the wind. But I digress. That's why we're married, Scott. We have our wives pick us up. That's it, absolutely. Meet me down the road. <laughs> Meet me upwind or downwind. I guess. All right, enough of that. Uh, considering the government and you know where it's gone with uh, accusations of interference and election interference, whatever. Um, and, and the kind of dragging the feed over uh, 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 studying this and, and, and putting in registries and such. Is this lip service? How significant is this? Oh, I sincerely hope it's not lip service, Scott. And we have a government that's finally growing a pair. I'm not sure I can say that on the radio or not. But uh, this is just, I think, the latest in information that, you know, those of us who worked in security intelligence have been warning for decades that a country like China, and you mentioned Russia and Iran, too, in your introduction, these are not allies of Canada. These are not friends of Canada. We know that China has been stealing our technology for decades. So this, to me, is is an announcement that is well past its due date. It should be made a long time ago. And let's hope that we have a government that is taking this seriously, although you may have heard that, they, that the government recently appointed a new national security intelligence advisor with no background right. in national security and intelligence. So I... I'm going to remain optimistic, Scott, that it actually means something, but the track record of this government is not promising in that regard. Who do these research, uh, who are these research institutions? Who are they involved with? Um, uh, who do they do business with? Is it private well, you know, industry? Is it universities? Yeah, it's a bit of all of the above. And in a world that worked properly, you'd want this intellectual exchange, right? I mean, we're all looking for solutions to problems, whether it's climate change or advanced technology. And I think that we all welcome the fact that we have countries who can share ideas, share scholars, and make advances. The problem here is that we're not talking about all these countries and their students coming from democracies. We're talking, they're coming from autocratic regimes like Putin's Russia and Xi Jinping's China and the Ayatollahs in Iran. They don't play by the same rule book that we do. Let's not be naive here, Scott. I'm sure some of our allies are also taking advantage of our technology, but we're all kind of on the same side singing from the same song sheet. Whereas what the autocratic regimes are doing is they're, they are using this technology in in a worst case scenario against us, as opposed to towards a common standard like NATO or whatever Western countries are going to belong to. So it, it's all above the board. And, and you know, I think it's about time that the, the security services have been warning about this for decades. It's about time the government actually put in place policies to try to ensure that these autocratic regimes do not get access to that technology. Uh, does this involve uh, people who are teaching, professors, students, that sort of thing? I would think it's all the above. And again, I think it's a delicate dance because we do want yeah. people from sure. other countries to come in and you know see our system of flaws and all that, and and hopefully they go home and say, well, you know, actually living in a democracy is a hell of a lot better than living in under a dictatorship. But there has to be careful vetting here. And normally in the security service, we don't tend to vet students. To the best of my knowledge, it's more on the immigration side. But the fact that that CSIS has been telling the government that this is happening for quite some time shows that they're aware of it and they're trying to advise the government on ways to stop it from happening. How do we do this? How do we police this? Well, number one, listen to your security services when they send you intelligence as opposed to saying, hey, that was in my inbox, but I didn't bother reading it, which is what Bill Blair said about Chinese foreign uh, interference in our elections. There has to be something in place. I think universities have an obligation. It, you know, it's not, it shouldn't just all be about foreign students, because you know as well as I do, Scott, that foreign students' tuition is like a gazillion times what a Canadian pays, right? Right. So these right. are like ka-ching to cash registers for universities to, to make money. I think there's an obligation that they have to acknowledge that there is a threat to national security here and that yes, they want academic freedom, but at the same time, they don't want to allow other nations. And the worst case scenario to simply outright steal our technology, which China has done in the past, or in a less worse scenario, use our technology against us down down the road. 
Uh, and we only have to look back to the pandemic to see evidence of this. When the Canadian government entered into a deal with China to come up with some sort of vaccine, they basically stole the information and then took off with it. Well, exactly. How many more examples do we need? We have the Chinese police stations in Canada, which you and I have spoken about. We have the, we have the, you know, not just allegations, but evidence that China is interfering in the diaspora here in Canada. They're pressuring Uyghur Canadians and Tibetan Canadians to shut their pie holes on what's happening over there. I mean, do we need more examples of the fact that China is not our friend and is not singing from the same song street that we are? Again, and, and again, we've talked about this in, in, on the show in the past, it, it, part of it's just a lack of understanding of what, what use intelligence is for, because we don't have a great intelligence culture here in Canada. And that is sort of coming to the forefront, or has been over the last little while, um, and we've certainly discussed it in the past. Why is this coming up now? Why are we doing this now? I would hope, <laughs> I'm going to really sound Pollyannish here, you know, I'm going to hope that the government finally had its eyes opened. But part of me is wondering whether or not some of our allies have been you know, picking up the phone and saying, hey, Canada, when are you guys going to get on side here? Because I do know yeah. from contacts I have that still work in the in, in the security intelligence field that even some of our closest friends are asking questions about Canadian relevance. And you've seen the same op-eds I have, I'm sure, Scott, mm-hmm. about Canada's role on the international stage being mocked right now. So we're not the Canada that we used to be. Far too apologetic, always issuing apologies for this, this, and that. So maybe there's been some actual not-so-subtle pressure from our allies for Canada to be on the same side as, as the allies, and maybe some thinly veiled um, warnings that if you guys don't do this, maybe we'll have to start calling into question the alliance we have with you in Canada. How do you think the, uh, whether it's Chinese, Iranians, or Russians will react to this? All will be the usual, uh, you know, yeah. incredulity. How dare you accuse us of stealing Canadian technology? How dare you accuse us of using your technology against you kind of thing? I mean, that in, in a $2, $2 gets you a latte at Tim's, or maybe it doesn't get you a latte. It gets you a small coffee, I suppose. <laughs> I, I would simply ignore it. We, we know what they're going to say because they say the same thing all the time. So just take it for what it is and just move on with better policies. Phil Kersky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, uh, keeping ourselves safe from those around us. Uh, Phil, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks. You too, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It is cold outside, minus 8, minus 14 uh, with the wind chill. I don't need to tell you it is cold. Uh, but, you know, if you're talking ice wine... Saddle up to the ice bar. Dorian Anderson with his executive director, Niagara Grape and Wine Festival, and is here now. Dorian, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Oh, I'm doing great. I'm loving this cold weather. So where does this leave the harvest, Dorian? Is that it? Is it done now? I don't know for sure that it's 100% done, but it's definitely in full swing. Uh, I don't know if anyone here follows the Niagara wineries as avidly as I do, but wineries right across Niagara have been out picking since early Sunday morning. Uh, so I think the bulk of the crop is off, but there are some wineries that are pretty big producers um, that do multiple different varieties of grapes. So they might still have a few hanging. So has this been the perfect week for all of this? Uh, ironically, yes. I think for the grape growers, it's been a perfect week. For the rest of us, we're trying to find ways to you know, cozy up and stay warm. But yeah, this has actually been ideal. One of the things that's a bit um, that the grape growers have to be really careful about is if the temperatures fluctuate. So let's say it hits minus eight, which we know is the magic number. But if it warms up too much before they have a chance to press the grapes, mm. then they're going to lose some of the concentration of the sweetness. So they need to make sure that it's going to stay at least minus eight from the moment they pick the grapes right until the grapes are pressed. So the last few days have been actually perfect. And does uh, it was you know we all know that winter started a little later this year. Does that affect this at all? Not so much. I think had it gone till the end of January, there might have been some concern because we do usually get a thaw a little bit later in the season. So right. as long as the temperatures are sort of dropping, uh, it allows you know the the acids and the, the sugars to concentrate quite a bit. But if they had frozen or gotten really close to that minus eight and then thawed out a little bit more. Sometimes that can add, you know, create rot or some of the grapes can really disintegrate on the vine. Um, but because we haven't had that thaw yet, um, it's actually been pretty much perfect conditions. So this year, compared to others, it should be a pretty good season for it then. 
you know, I think it's actually going to be a great season. As You know, we haven't had that thaw, as I mentioned. Um, temperatures have been pretty consistent, and it didn't go too late. We also have had it kind of cold enough that there hasn't been issues with birds that sometimes, uh, if you're driving past vineyards and you see right. nests around some of the grapes, that's to keep the birds off. Um, but, yeah, I think it's been pretty close to ideal. Okay, so talk about the process now, because you said it's important that the grapes get uh, off the vine and depressing before uh, the before the temperature rises too much. So what is the process once they're out there in the cold, they get these grapes in, what happens then? So there's two different ways you can harvest ice wine grapes. One of them is with a grape harvester, the same style that they would use for regular wine, um, and that really just sort of plucks the berries off of the vines and they go into large sort of vats or containers. Uh, the other way is to hand harvest them. So they literally yeah. go through in the cold and clip them with pruners and collect them into smaller totes. Um, but regardless of how that happens, then they go through a bit of a shaker to get most of the stems off. Uh, and then those frozen grapes are pressed in there's different types of presses. But you can imagine if you were squeezing a frozen grape, how little liquid you would get out of it. And that's what makes ice wine so special is you're really extracting a very, very small amount of highly concentrated liquid. Um, and then honestly, the bulk of what's left, they call that the ice wine puck, uh, essentially gets composted or discarded. So, um, you know, what, when you would normally, let's say, get a bottle of wine for every vine, you, this you would probably get a bottle of ice wine for every four or five vines. Hmm. So when will we be drinking the ice wine that was harvested this year, that was harvested this week? So the earliest you would be drinking it is next year. So it also, right. you know, similar to regular wine, um, it has to go into tank or barrel. It needs to ferment. It needs time for the yeast to interact to, you know, make the alcohol and sort of get everything to mellow out. So I would say the earliest we would be having the 2023 20, uh, season harvest would be, um, you know, or like late next year winter i would say and what about this year's edition of the niagara grape and wine fest how's it going it's going amazingly well we had our kickoff event the coolest ice gala at the niagara parks power station on saturday night we had a full house a little over a thousand people uh, kicked off the festival with us uh, and then the discovery pass program started last weekend as well so that runs for the next two weekends where guests can go visit wineries across niagara uh, with their Discovery Pass and have food and wine pairings. And the Niagara-on-the-Lake uh, Street Festival, which many people love in the historic old part of Niagara-on-the-Lake, hmm. is on this Saturday and Sunday as well as next Saturday and Sunday. So whether you want to be in the vineyards or the charming town of Niagara-on-the-Lake, there's tons to do until the end of the month. Dorian Anderson with us, Executive Director of Niagara Grape and Wine Festival, on now as they're picking the grapes as we speak, if they haven't already. You can find out more at NiagaraWineFestival.com. Dorian, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Have fun. My pleasure. Nice chatting with you. Housing starts fell short across the country 2023. It's a real problem, according to the Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute, Mike Moffitt, Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the, at the Smart Prosperity Institute and Assistant Professor in the Business Economics and Public Policy Group, Ivy Business School, Western University. And here now, Mike, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, thank you for having me. So obviously, uh, housing uh, starts fell short, and I guess that's a problem across the country, except uh, with maybe the exception of BC. Is this due to high costs, uh, basically high interest rates, uh, developers now spending more than they had to before? How do you explain this? Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, largely due to economic conditions, uh, so inflation and the cost of building materials. But the biggest one is interest rates. Those interest rates are higher uh, borrowing costs for builders and developers, but they're also affecting the demand side that a lot of first-time home buyers are sitting on the sidelines uh, because they can't qualify for a mortgage. So because the, the demand is, isn't there at the moment that a lot of builders are just saying, well, look, instead of trying to sell into a soft market. Let's just wait a year or two and see if things improve. Is there any way to change that considering the demand or are we just sort of victim of, of market conditions here? 
Well, I, I certainly think we can improve uh, the uh, improve some of the policy conditions. So, for instance, uh, both the federal and provincial government have eliminated the HST on purpose-built rental construction. That will certainly help. It will uh, help a lot of projects that wouldn't otherwise uh, be viable um, be able to get over the line. So there are some things that we can do uh, on the policy environment side, but we also just need some better economic luck. We need to start seeing those interest rates go down. Uh, we need to start to see a stronger economy. And then I, I think we will start to uh, get a bounce back in these housing start numbers. Uh, some experts have said the housing market is reversing or will reverse before rates go down. That won't need to happen for this to to shift. Is that just simply because of low supply and high demand? Yeah, uh, absolutely. That I, I think once uh, once we start to see a normalization, I think things are going to pick up really quickly. That uh, we we've added over a million uh, adults to the uh, population in in twenty twenty three across Canada. Um, so that you, you know you usually have about two adults per household. So you know that right there is about a half million homes that we need. We didn't even build half of that last year. So you know we've got a gap of two hundred fifty. 300,000 homes in just a single year, that's going to catch up with us. And we are going to see once we have a bit of a normalization, that demand pick up and home prices and rents go up even further. You were talking about the increase in population over the last year. Should housing be tied to immigration? We heard that uh, two years ago, the Immigration Department had warned the government uh, targets too high. This is going to create uh, or fuel the crisis in housing and in health care uh, and then kind of ignored that. Oddly, oddly enough, now the old immigration minister is now trying to solve the problem in housing. Should these two be tied together? I, I think absolutely that we need to have a coordinated plan. And, you know, right now we have immigration targets uh, for, for permanent residents. So every year, uh, you know, we know that we're bringing in, you know, 400,000 going up to 500,000 new permanent residents. What we don't have is any kind of target for what we call non-permanent residents. So these are temporary foreign workers, international students and the like. And we've seen some pretty massive growth uh, in those categories and in some communities, we we just simply can't handle that level of growth that quickly. So absolutely, I think we need to coordinate our population growth policies uh, with our housing and infrastructure policies. Uh, you talked before, last time we spoke, about uh, a wartime housing plan, and, and people talked about that for a week or so, and then it was gone. Where is that? Is that moving forward? How does that come into the mix? Yeah, so we have seen some of that. So one one of the recommendations on that was the catalog of pre-approved designs. Uh, the housing, the federal housing minister announced that in early December. Um, they said there were going to be uh, consultations starting in January. So hopefully those start up soon. But there's a lot more uh, to do. Uh, the housing, the federal housing minister has stated that uh, more policy is coming. Um, so we should see a, a new housing plan uh, release in the next few months, along with a a federal budget. So hopefully the federal government will sort of realize the scope and scale of this issue and, uh, you know, really get aggressive over the next few months. Uh, You talked about uh, uh, international students and such. We obviously know they pay way more intuition than uh, a, a, a domestic student. Do the universities or colleges need to do more to provide their own housing for their own students? Uh, they do, and and some of them are are, are doing it, uh, particularly at the university level. So you know, there's a wide uh, spectrum of uh, actors in the system. So you have some universities and colleges who are growing their international student populations at a reasonable rate. Uh, they're building on campus housing, and they're being quite responsible. On the other hand, you have a number of institutions that aren't really building much housing at all and are adding tens of thousands of extra students every single year hmm. um, in a way that communities uh, can't support. And to put that in the context, two colleges in the last 16 months, uh, Centennial and Conestoga, have added more international students than uh, Canada's 15 largest uh, uh 
research universities. So mm. two colleges have uh, uh, had brought in more than U of T and UBC and McMaster and Western mm. and all the other ones combined. So the, you do have a handful of institutions that are growing very, very quickly. Mike Moffat with us, Senior Director of Policy Innovation, Smart Prosperity Institute, Assistant Professor in Business Economics, Public Policy Group, Ivy Business School, Western University. Always fascinating, Mike. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Is Canada still useful in world affairs? Former Liberal Foreign Minister John Manley doesn't think so and, and has said, as many uh, senior Liberals, uh, many seasoned Liberals have said uh, and are starting to say more, uh, comments in regard to where the current Liberal Party is. Um, Manley has stated, uh, you can't sit at the G8, uh, G7 table and then sneak to the washroom when the bill arrives. Here's a quote. We really, we're really good at telling people how to conduct themselves. We were a useful country. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, PhD program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary and International History, Trinity College and the Monk, uh, Monk School, University of Toronto. He is here now. Jack, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Good to be with you. So these are pretty damaging statements from a much-loved politician who was uh, deep in the Liberal Party at one time. Is this resonating with Canadians? Well, I don't know if it is. It's uh, These statements are fairly recent, but uh, they should resonate. I mean, it's, uh, it's sort of a fact of political life that once a politician is, is actually out of politics, he's free to tell us what he really thinks. And Mr. Manley is expressing what I think many, uh, many liberals uh, feel. There's dissatisfaction with this government. There's a sense that it's adrift. And as someone who's observed its actions from a distance for quite some time, I can say that uh, by a lot of measures, we're not doing what we need to do to uh, maintain that, uh, that seat at the table that Mr. Manley referred to. How are the liberals different in this era compared to that of Manley's? Well, for one thing, uh, they're simply spending less on the world outside. There was a recent report by the Senate on the Foreign Service that pointed out we're, uh, we're not the presence diplomatically that, uh, that we should be and that at various times we have been. The Department of Global Affairs is uh, bloated at the top with uh, senior managers, many of whom are rotated in from other departments and have no particular expertise in foreign affairs. But we're pretty thin when it comes to uh, diplomats on the ground and actual policymaking. It's even worse when you look at defense. I mean, we promised Ukraine this air defense system a year ago. We've yet to deliver. One of the suppliers says he hasn't even concluded a contract with Canada. So when it comes to uh, walking the talk, uh, we're doing a pretty lousy job of it. I remember, many may remember when the Prime Minister was elected way back when that he stood up and said, Canada is back. Didn't he specifically mean on the world stage? He did. He meant that quite emphatically. He was trying to draw a contrast with his predecessor, whom he painted as, uh, as having presided over a period of increasing irrelevance for Canada in world affairs. But uh, when it comes to actually investing the resources necessary to make us a player, uh, he's uh, he's been absent, uh, particularly in defense. I mean, uh, previous liberal prime ministers and foreign ministers have known that uh, if you're going to be effective at projecting soft power, you have to have hard power to back it up. And we don't, which is why we are, as Mr. Manley pointed out, very good at giving lectures, not particularly good at making a contribution to uh, addressing international problems. Uh, do seasoned liberal uh, players, do seasoned liberal politicians have influence over this prime minister, or is it a completely new regime? It's a completely new regime, and uh, apparently Mr. Trudeau takes advice from a very small circle of trusted intimates, long-term advisors. He makes a point of not listening to uh, those with uh, relevant experience from the past. I've heard it on good authority that when uh, former Prime Minister Chen tried to phone Mr. Trudeau, he was actually shunted off to an aide. Uh, that's uh, that's mm. an indication of how relatively isolated and insulated Trudeau is. 
And as long as that continues, he's not able to tap the expertise and wisdom of others. Most of his long-term advisors have no particular interest in or expertise in foreign affairs. And I think that explains a lot of the drift of this government when confronted with international problems. Is this government drifting or do they honestly believe they're going in the right direction? Because, you know, whether it's polling or just comments from others, I mean, things just seem to be going down and down and down and down and down for them. Do they not recognize that this in that inner circle? I don't think they do. I think other liberals do, because that's uh, it's it's hard to deny that we've seen an awful lot of fairly prominent liberal MPs announcing that they will not be running again. They sense that uh, public opinion is turning against the government, that it's no longer on side with the uh, the Canadian electorate. Um, Mr. Trudeau, I think, is sufficiently isolated that he doesn't realize how dire the situation is. And he's uh, he's got, I think, an unmerited confidence in his own ability to, uh, to impress the electorate. A few months before he gave this current interview, Mr. Manley gave another, uh, no, it wasn't an interview, it was a social media post in which he suggested Mr. Trudeau should leave. And I think he pointed out that uh, 10 years, is you after 10 years in office, and Mr. Trudeau will reach that uh, th- th- next year, uh, you're sort of past your sell-by date. He called it the Seinfeld rule because uh, Jerry Seinfeld abandoned his uh, television mm. show after nine years when it was still doing well and before it started to tank. Uh, There's an argument for politicians to leave before they start to tank in the esteem of the public, and I don't think it's impressed itself on Mr. Trudeau. Uh, do, does the leader recognize that he, well, it's the wrong question, but you know, it clearly he is dragging the party down. At what point does the party say, uh, we at least need a fighting chance in the next election. You got to go, we got to get a new leader. And even if, you know, there's too much of the old school in the new school, at least it starts them off on a mark uh, pre-election is there any chance that he'll see that he's he's not only hurting himself but he's dragging the party down he's hurting the party's future chances i don't think he's going to see that uh, on his uh, on his own i think he's going to need to be beaten over the head with that fact uh mr manley's interview is interesting and it may represent sort of an opening gun in a campaign to uh, persuade mr trudeau that it's time for him to go We'll see what happens. I do know that there are a lot of liberal MPs who are privately uh, deeply concerned about their prospects with Mr. Trudeau, with the uh, the head of the team. Whether they will uh, speak up enough, uh, pressure Mr. Trudeau, make enough of an impression to get him to recognize the realities, that's hard to predict. How soon would that have to happen in order to have an impact on the next election? Well, for a new leader to have a fighting chance, uh, I think he or she would need to have been in office for uh, for some time, create an impression of change, create an impression of distance from the uh, the previous regime. So time is running out. I think unless Mr. Trudeau decides to depart in the first half of this year, uh, it's probably too late for the Liberals. Uh, are those in the wings standing by? Is there pressure there to get him to leave? Are there better leaders in that party? Well, one of the problems with this government is that it has not encouraged the emergence of strong ministers because it sees them as potential rivals. Uh, whenever a cabinet minister gets uh, too prominent, he or she is demoted or mm. shuffled off to the back benches. That happened with uh, Anita Anand, who was making uh, quite a record at defense and then got shuffled over to the uh, the Treasury Board. The only strong minister that this government has really groomed is uh, Christia Freeland. And I've heard rumors, I don't know if there's any truth to them, that she's actually not interested in it. If she were, she is sort of positioned as the logical alternative. Unless she were to make a move soon, uh, it would probably uh, not materialize. And the liberals would have little choice but to go into the next election with Mr. Trudeau with the helm. Only got a few seconds left, Jack. What about Sean Fraser? He's been making a lot of news as uh, as housing minister and the former immigration minister. That, well, the problem with all these housing announcements is it's going to take some time for them to actually affect uh, yeah. the state of the housing market and how people experience their difficulties 
uh, accessing affordable housing. This may have come too late to uh, be much use to the Liberals' electoral fortunes. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Scott Radley coming in after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. You're going to talk about this on your show, and I saw this headline. And I thought, oh, man, I don't, know, I don't even want to open this up because I don't even want to learn about a new disease uh, and you're talking about disease X, but this is a hypothetical disease. Uh, the World Health Organization working on a plan in case this happens again. Yeah, this is um, this is a really interesting one, I think, because it's not just a plan that they're talking about, but this is ground zero of every conspiracy theory that a lot of people have. <laughs> that the people who are behind the World Health Organization and other things are basically concocting the next virus for us to get. I mean, how, how long was it, Scott, between the last pandemic and this one? I mean, we had SARS in 2003, something like that, but that was not worldwide. That was a localized, generalized thing. When was the last full-blown worldwide pandemic? Well, I can't think of it. Obviously, Smallpox, maybe? Yeah, I mean, and then you go back to, uh, obviously, COVID-19. So what's your point here? Then well, we the, shouldn't be doing this? No, 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 no. The, I, I just think it's a, re, it's the fact that they are talking about this in the way they are, I think is feeding every one of the people who have beliefs that this is not something that is unusual and rare and accidental. I think it's, it's a really interesting discussion because to be very open about saying, Hey, look, this next disease is right around the corner and is just about to come and we better be ready. Well, it took dozens and dozens and dozens of years for us to get the second pandemic after the last one. I just, I mean, we should be prepared. We absolutely should be prepared. It's just a really interesting approach that is being taken here to say, Hey, get ready. Cause it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, again, it, 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 how can being prepared for something create conspiracy theories? I, I don't know that it's a, well, I don't believe it's a bad thing to be prepared. I think it's a really no, good thing to be prepared. I would say it's a good idea. In fact, yeah. if we look uh, after SARS, we had some steps that were taken to have mm -hmm. uh, personal protective equipment and stuff that we gave away and didn't take seriously. We allowed to expire and things. So we didn't really learn from SARS what we probably should have learned from SARS that would have helped us in the early days of this. We didn't, we didn't, I don't think, treat the beginnings of this, um, people can debate this, but I, I, I think we, you know, if you remember the very early days, w there were suggestions, Hey, we should close the borders to people coming from China, not because they're Chinese, but because that's where yeah, this virus coming is coming from. from. No, that's racist. We should close yeah. the airports. No, we shouldn't do that. We should mm -hmm. wear masks. No, you shouldn't wear a mask. Like it went, the list of things that we were told and then not told is long. And so we should be prepared when the next one comes. The question is, is the way that the experts are approaching this and talking about this, not the preparation, Scott, the talk about this, is the way so they're the talking about they're this saying, leading to more conspiracy theories that this is something that is going to be introduced rather than something that naturally will pop up someday somewhere. Because they are saying, you know, this is going to happen or this could really happen again. Because they're saying that, that people think that it's man-made. Well, and, and because at one point I think they were discussing, and I got to look this one up, but they were discussing, uh, the next one, you know, it, it may kill off 20 times more people. And again, like it's the, it's the communication yeah, here yeah, that yeah. I'm thinking, yeah. is it not enough simply to say, look, we you could have another. You can't silence the scientists, Scott. We could have another pandemic. If you had simply said, if you're simply saying yeah. we're preparing for what could happen. But again, I'm reading so many things online from so many people saying they're talking about this like they know something. I don't believe yeah. that. I don't believe, I, I'm not willing to go down that kind of conspiracy rabbit hole, but it, it is lending itself to creating doubt among those who are naturally doubting already. I don't care about them. Well, um, at you the should end of the, though, at, you should. At the, at the end of the day, there's a lot of we've, 
at the end of the day, we've had a, a worldwide experience, and uh, it is what it is. You can call it, you can say it's something different, but we saw the results of it. Uh, so to be prepared for something so that doesn't happen again, so we're not taken by surprise, don't have to shut the world down, I mean, I think that's, I think that's just being proactive. Uh, there's always going to be stupid people. What do you do about that? Well, there's one other thing to this that I find really interesting, and this I don't think is, well, I don't know, I don't want to say it's conspiracy theory, but I I don't know that we've ever, do do you feel confident, Scott, that you know, or you are reasonably sure how we even got COVID? I don't mean you personally. Yeah, I do. You you think it came from the wet market? Yep. Because there are a lot you know of people. Why? A you lot. know why? Because there's so m- I've had so many scientists on at the beginning of this that said that they could track down right to the exact person how SARS and all of that and the requ- and the reply from the scientists was ain't science great and the only reason we didn't have more conclusive evidence of that wet market was because it was hosed down before inspectors got in to look at it. I'm, I, you are more trusting than I am. The fact that there is a, a virology lab in Wuhan that was testing these, not this nest. I don't know if they were testing this, but this is where this thing comes from. The I'm not Wuhan disagreeing. illness. I, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, I have many more doubts about where it came from. Does that ultimately matter? Well, I suppose no. it does, but, no. I, but I think that we don't, if we are not even willing or at the point where we can say, we are absolutely sure we know where this thing started. Uh, we do need to prepare for what's coming next. Cause you know, maybe there is one looming, but I, again, it's such a fascinating thing about how they are wording this and that it's looming. It's looming, not it could happen. It's looming. And that's making again, re- fairly or not, that's making an awful lot of people say, wait a second, what do they yeah. know that we don't know? The discussion continues on the Scott Radley Show after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.